0: As we come to the Word, let's again seek the Lord's teaching grace in our lives. Father, we rejoice in these words, words which this world really struggles to understand, let alone ever experience. We praise You that we can speak of joy and peace and hope and help and love. And know that these are granted to us in our relationship with you. We praise you that we know this as you have revealed it in your word. And we come now to that word as we have sung it and as we have recited it together. We come now to this text of scripture and we realize that we will miss what we need to see apart from your teaching ministry to us. We pray for that ministry. We ask that you'd open our hearts to understand our minds to be clear, and eyes to see what you would reveal and have us understand as your people. And for those who know not Christ, may you draw them to the light of, in saving faith, even today we pray. Guide us here, may your name be praised, as we, as the church, gather around this table and around now this passage of scripture, in Christ's name we pray, amen irreplaceable. On occasion, we hear this anguished cry at the news that some great leader has died. There are rare individuals who rise to the very summit of their own abilities, but they also outstrip the capacities of others in their earthly endeavors. And over time, they garner unusual respect, as people look to them for inspiration, but more importantly, depend upon them to do what it seems that no one else can do. It may be a politician or a military general, a retiring athlete, the CEO of a corporation or even a patriarch or matriarch of a family. Irreplaceable. An anguish irreplaceable is also sounded from time to time in the cause of Christ's kingdom. Some giant of the faith who stood for righteousness, who battled evil with courage and unusual skill, is now gone. Irreplaceable, God's discouraged saints moan as they mourn. One of those seemingly irreplaceable saints in redemption history was the prophet Elijah. Emerging from the rugged haunts of Gilead, clothed in the crudest of clothing, yet standing up to kings in their palaces. This prophet of God stood as a colossal figure against the moral degeneracy of Israel's Omri dynasty, the offspring of Omri the king. We've journeyed with this Elijah as he appeared out of nowhere in Ahab's court to confront idolatry in Israel. This is the man of God who marshaled rain, who called down fire, who met alone on the mountaintop with God, who called down fire again and called down fire again and prophesied the demise of godless kings. In a time of entrenched apostasy, Elijah stood in the gap as God's man. He fought for righteousness as the most wanted enemy in idolatrous Israel. And so the reverence, the honor that was afforded to Elijah by God's people would really be hard to overestimate. That esteem rose highest in the heart of the one who was closest to him, his apprentice, Elisha. And it rose also, we would imagine, to the highest heights on the part of the schools of the prophets. These young prophets who were beginning now to gather around in seminary-like settings, training as young prophets, coming to saturate themselves in the truths of Scripture, knowing what God's law said, And then being challenged to consider how the society had pulled so far away from that law to these prophet training posts, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, God revealed, however, despite all of this, that Elijah's remarkable legendary journey as God's prophet of Israel was over. Elijah was in very good physical condition. He was at the height of his capacities as a prophet of God. It might be reading too much into the text, but it seems that he's even being left alone a little more than before. That is, his esteem is so high in the society that even kings that are godless don't know what to do with him. But God determined that His journey was over. As we come to the chapter Second Kings, chapter two, we find several movements of this narrative through verse eighteen. First of all, in the first eight verses, Elisha accompanies Elijah on what is now his last mission. Chapter two, verse one. Now, when the Lord was a about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. We learn just in a few verses that they know this is coming. They know that Elijah will be taken up to heaven on this particular day. Now this Gilgal, geographically higher than Bethel, so this is not the Gilgal near the Jordan River where Joshua set up camp. More significantly, the Lord reveals that Elijah will be swept upward to heaven this day. Whatever that means, no one really knew. Verse 2, And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. There it is. A larger view of the journey that's going to take place and then the narrower view. I have this a little out of order, so get a good look at it now. Um, So this please in verse 2. It's a gracious way to give a command, sometimes, please. But here, Elijah truly means if you please. Since the day Elijah draped his prophet's cloak over Elisha at his ancestral farm, Elisha had accompanied Elijah everywhere. That's what disciples did. Remember the phrase that's used of elishas that he poured water over the hands of Elijah. This was a disciple, one highly trusted, but was also one who personally attended Elijah wherever he went. So, with an air of finality then, Elijah is saying here, we can part ways now. I give you leave to no longer attend me. It's been a good run, my friend. There's no reason for you to be here any longer. Today is my final mission. And I can travel alone. What does Elisha say? Not on your life. I am not leaving. This. And I don't think it's because he wants to see this whirlwind and <laughs> exit into heaven. Like he just has to see it. He's saying, I revere you. I love you. You are my father in some sense. And I'm sticking right here with you. So forgive me again here. We'll get back to our outline. Verse 3. So verse 3, the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel, they make their way from Gilgal down to Bethel, they came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes I know it, keep quiet. So with what's going on here, with deferential courtesy, these young scholars aren't going to go running up to Elijah and to say, do you know this is your last day? And so they get Elisha's side and they say, probably in hushed tones, and reverential tones do you realize what's happening have you heard from God as we have that he's going to leave today God is going to take him and Elisha is basically saying listen this isn't time for spreading gossip even though this is the God's truth this isn't what we're going to do now it's time to listen it's time to hear from Elijah for the last time as he journeys on let's not make this a scene He's just defending Elijah, preparing for him, helping him here as this group of young prophets comes around. There's no value in merely emoting about what God has decided. This is not a time for babbling about news. This is a time to listen and to heed. And so, verse 4, Elijah said to him again, Elisha, please stay here. Stay here at Bethel, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Elijah gives Elisha again an opportunity to pull away from this 14-mile hike. That's why I say Elijah's in good shape. He's not decrepit. But he takes this 14-mile hike down to Jericho and says, you don't need to attend me here. But again, of course, Elisha says, I'm going with you. And so they make their way southeast to Jericho. Nothing in the world will persuade Elisha to leave Elijah's side at this point. Verse 5 The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So the same thing here is just natural. Again, Elisha sighed. Have you heard? Has God revealed to you what's going to happen? Yes, yes. It's time to listen, not to talk. Hear what the prophet says. This is his last visit with you. Let's not focus on that, but what he has to say. Verse 6, Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on so we have this third offer to skip now this five mile hike to the Jordan River and ending their relationship here at Jericho where there is a school of the prophets where there is a place to stay for him you can just let me go from here and Elisha of course says not on your life I'm coming with Fifty men, verse 7, of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. So these are 50 men who are in prophetic training. They're learning the Scriptures. They're being taught. They're looking forward to the ministry in the days ahead. And they stand on the elevated western bank of the Jordan River, looking and watching these two as they come to the water. From that elevated position, they can see all that is taking place. Kind of interesting, it's 50. Uh, these are 50 who are they know right where Elijah is. Uh, last week in chapter 1, we had the groups of 50 soldiers that couldn't bring him down from the mountain. These are on the mountain watching Elijah as he walks down to the, to the river. They're not seeking to capture him, but to observe. These are God's people watching God's prophets. And they watch as he journeys eastward to the river. But what happens there, these trainees will never forget. Verse 8, Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. So understanding just the little help that we get from the Hebrew words, it seems that he rolled it up into like a rod. And took that mantle that people knew, uh, identified him, and were uh, they could see him in that robe. And he rolled it up like a, like a tube, like a rod. Like Moses of old at the Red Sea, he whaps the river hard. As he strikes it, the water stops and a dry passageway is formed for them. Much like the Israelites at the Red Sea. Much like Joshua as he came from the other direction into the land. We could go on and on all day of the parallels and the connections between them. But what God is showing here to these prophets who observe, to Elisha who is with him, is that God's presence is with this man. He's identifying with redemption history. And God is responding as he parts the river. Now again, Elisha has great vigor. He's not an old, rickety man who needs to be unstiffened, as they say. But he is a man that's able to do this long walk, this hike through, uh, through this very difficult terrain, and makes his way down to this, to this river at this place. And Elijah submits then to the plan of God with great courage. He smacks the water and walks across and trusts in God, saying, this is my last day. I will submit to the Lord's will. I will transition out. May the Lord grant to each of us, as His children, the confidence to enter His presence with this kind of courage and trust. It's the Lord's will to take me home. I'm ready. And across they go, and these 50 young prophets, I'm sure, with eyes like saucers looking at what has just happened. The two most prominent prophets in Israel are now on the other side of the Jordan as the waters return, disappearing from sight into the hills and ravines, and they continue on, and as they do, they talk. And in that conversation, the key point of that conversation as we move to this new movement in the narrative is that Elisha negotiates for Elijah's office. I think we must understand before we even get to the text that this has nothing to do with selfish ambition. This is rather willingly laying down his life to pay the price that Elijah has paid. And so in verse 9 we read that when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Some blessing. Some word of comfort. Some word of wisdom. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. This is not a request to have the power or twice the power uh, of the miracle-working powers that Elijah had. It's not a request to receive twice the pay. Elisha uses common inheritance language here. A double portion was the inheritance that went to the oldest son when a father passed. Now usually the firstborn son was the first one born. But that was not always the case. It wasn't the case in Israel, was it? Remember Isaac's 12 sons, which was the first. Space-born son. That was Reuben. But who was the firstborn son? The one with the firstborn right was Joseph. And so when the land was divided up, Joseph got a double portion. Ephraim got land and Manasseh got land. That's the, the context of this statement. So what he is saying is, I'm willing, should it be God's will and yours, to carry on the work that you're doing Elijah had done some amazing things. Let's not also forget that he ran for his life, his entire ministry. He was always in witness protection. And Elisha says, I'll do it. If it is your will, if it is the Lord's will, I'll carry this weight. I'll pick up your mantle. So Elisha asking to carry that and to replace Elijah in that sense. Verse 10, And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. I think what he means is that's a hard thing. It's not something I can grant. You're asking a hard thing for yourself. It's a hard thing also for me. I I can't grant that. Only God can. So let's do this. Let's establish a sign. If God is not in this, then you will not see me translated into heaven. If God is in this, then you will. And you will carry on this work. It's a hard thing. But we'll leave this in God's hands. In the next scene, Beginning at verse 11, we see Elijah then translated to heaven. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. After such a long journey that day, I would assume that the sun is sinking on the horizon But we cannot begin to imagine what this scene looked like as the sweet chariots swung low. The chariots and horses of fire are some sort of angelic transport that separated Elijah, I believe he's saying vertically, separated him by lifting him in this storm upwards to heaven. A gust of wind and instantly the law struck Elisha hard. Verse 12, And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. He saw it. This was the sign that he was now Elijah's successor, according to the choice of God. But that does not register immediately With Elisha, does it? The man who would allow no talk of this event among the prophets now yells out in anguish. My father, my father, you've been taken home on the chariots of fire. The separation was sudden and it was excruciating. And we see the evidence of that here in verse 12. Elisha saw it and cried And then, in the middle of the verse, he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. A sign of deep anguish and grief. A giant had left them. A giant of the faith who seemed irreplaceable. What would this mean to God's cause going forward? Well, in the spot where Elijah had only recently stood lay a crude Animal skin cloak, exchanged in an instant for robes of glory that were unfit for this world. The cloak was probably still warm with Elijah's body heat when Elisha retrieved it off the ground. And we see then, beginning at verse 13, that Elisha indeed assumes Elijah's office, picking up his mantle both figuratively and literally. Verse 13, verse 12, he took hold of his clothes and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? So his taking up this office is proven by his splitting the river from the other direction. And he asks exactly the right question. Where is the God of Israel? Everyone was fixated and will be fixated for some time on knowing where Elijah was. Elijah is gone. Yahweh is not. It's precisely the right question. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Verse, four, uh, verse 14, And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elijah went over. Fulfilling the sign, Elisha did indeed witness Elijah's translation into heaven. Like Enoch of old, Elijah was no more, for God took him, and Elijah knew it. Elisha knew it. Last week, chapter 1, we saw that repeated theme Is there no God in Israel? This echoing voice of Elijah echoes now in Elisha's words. In a sense, that's what Elisha is saying in the face of this loss of this great pillar of the faith. Elisha stands at the Jordan and says in effect, Elijah is gone. But is there no God in Israel? There is bold comfort in this for us as God's people who've suffered the loss of a loved one, especially, I would think, of those wives among us who've lost your husbands. Besides hell, the separation of death is the worst pain we can suffer. And the deeper the love, the deeper that loss. But we can take heart, even in the face of this text, to say there is a God in heaven who never leaves us and never forsakes us. We may suffer the gaping hole of a loved one, the hole that one once occupied, but for the born-again believer in Christ, we know with certainty that He will never leave us or forsake us. That we will never suffer the loss of God's presence, ever. Where is The God of Elijah, he's right here, never left, never will. So it may seem that Elijah is irreplaceable, but trusting God, Elisha picks up his mantle and journeys on. So we see a confirmation here in his parting of the Jordan, and we see a confirmation as well by the search over Jordan by the young prophets, beginning in verse 15. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And he said to them, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men, Please, let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. I assume that that was probably the end of the day right there. We're going to bed. You know, you're not going out there. I know where he is. Believe me. But at any rate, the young prophets were not finished. They wanted closure on this verse 17 but when they urged him till he was ashamed and that might be over some days we don't know but he urges them until they're ashamed and he said send and they sent therefore 50 men and for three days they sought him but did not find him and they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho and he said to them did I not say to you do not go I mean I I didn't expect you to find anything I knew you wouldn't Young prophets wear Elisha down with their insistence, and it became harder and harder to refuse their requests. So eventually, he just drew the conclusion: I got to send them. They're going to waste three days of their young life, but they'll get some exercise at least. And it's really a stupid mission, isn't it? I'm like, where could God put him down? Why would you assume right where he picked him up? Maybe he's back on the other side of Jordan. It's, they, they have no idea what they're doing, but I think it just demonstrates the reverence, the loss. This man is irreplaceable. Maybe he's not dead. Maybe we can find him. Maybe they had a theology test they wanted to get out of. I don't know, but he says, okay, go, go, try to find him. And all that this did was to confirm that Elisha was now the chief prophet of Israel. There was no question as these 50 young men watched Elijah separate the river, watched it go back, waited, and saw Elisha come back and separate the river. It was crystal clear what God had decided, confirming that Elisha was the one to pick up the mantle. And as with Moses... God assured that no one turned Elijah's tomb into a place of veneration. There are tombs that Christians venerate, probably shouldn't. The great irony, and indeed divine humor, is that the one tomb that's most venerated in the Christian world is empty. That's not the case with other religions. Self-proclaimed the most significant tomb, most visited and most revered in the world, is the tomb of Muhammad. His bones are in it. In Jerusalem, there's a tomb that all kinds of people visit, and there's nobody there. And I don't think it's wrong to mark a tomb. I don't think it's wrong for people to go back in respect But that's not where we're living, is it? There's nobody here today in any danger of having a grave that will become a shrine or magnet for pilgrims. That's not where any of us stands. That was a danger for Moses. That was a danger for Elijah, and God took them. No one knows where their bodies are. That was a danger in a smaller sense, but that was a danger for the great Reformation theologian and pastor John Calvin. He knew there was a possibility that his place of burial would become a shrine, a place of veneration, that the attention would be turned to him. And so he demanded that he be buried in an unmarked grave in Geneva, Switzerland, When he died in 1564, the church honored his wishes. And just a few months later, some students that were from other countries had traveled all the way to Geneva and they asked the believers there, can you point out John Calvin's grave? A number of people had died since he died. And all were fresh mounds of dirt. And the believers said, Yeah, I guess I'm sorry, I'm not really sure which one it is. Just a few months later. Now, of course, the tourism industry has decided for us where it is. (laughs) They've supplied one and put a marker on it and put a little place there of a memorial as people go back and know that this is where he was buried. But I think it speaks to the spirit. It doesn't matter. And that's the point. We worship a Savior who died and who is alive. And in the taking of Moses, though that was in discipline, in the taking of Enoch of old, in the taking of Elijah, there is a demonstration of the power of resurrection. We pass through, but this is not our home. We're right to revere individuals God uses in magnificent ways to advance His cause. But this narrative reminds us that only God is irreplaceable. And He's not going anywhere. When God ends the ministry of one of His faithful servants, that ministry ends at just the right time. The death or incapacity of one of His trustworthy servants, never really leaves a hole. God either sovereignly chooses to close that file and finish up that ministry, or He supplies someone for the vacated post. God's work is sovereignly appointed, it is sovereignly accomplished, it is His presence that matters, and He's not going anywhere. His plan will never fail. The worst experience of this irreplaceable angst in history, was not here on the Jordan River. Where was it? Can you imagine it? It was that moment when the sinless Son of God said to His disciples, those who had watched a life that was so devoted to God, so selfless, so sinless, and He says to them, I am going away. And then that horrific day when it seemed he had. Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, his body entombed, and the disciples suffering the crushing weight of his absence. Jesus was irreplaceable. And yet even he, if understood in a unique way, said what? Before his death, he made this mind-numbing promise. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you, the Spirit of truth. I will leave. I am irreplaceable. But I will send the Spirit. We're not going anywhere. Within his triune ministry, it was best for the incarnate Son to go away so that the Holy Spirit would mediate his presence in the soul of his people wherever we are, wherever we go, and that presence, believer, goes with you as it goes with me. It was good that he went away, that he might send the Spirit. What a crushing blow. To see Jesus leave. We think of the Ephesian elders grieving. When the Apostle Paul informed that. You'll never see me again in this life. Or Elisha crying out in anguish. My father. My father. But the all important point. Is that God goes Nowhere. He never leaves. He never forsakes. He never abandons. His work goes on. He is the one who is doing the work. He uses us in His grace only for a season. He will always supply where He removes. And He will always attend us as he carries us all the way home. In this we can rest, and in this meal we bear witness to that hope. For we serve a risen Savior who will come again. Let's bow. Lord, as we come to this time and gather around this meal as your children, as your people, as those who cling in hope, to your grace and to your kindness to us in Christ, I pray that we would sense in this moment the fragility of life, the fact that every one of us will be replaced on this earth in some way. I pray, Father, that we would come to terms with the fact that we've got one life to live and that we'd live it well for the glory of your name. We praise you for our Savior who laid down his life for our redemption. And we gather now around this theme, around this table, as the body of Christ to commune with you. Draw us close. May we be aware of your presence. May we commune with our risen Savior in this meal as we identify with him and with one another. Meet with us here as your church, we pray, through Jesus. Amen.